Fiskamach agus Ladies and gentlemen, it has taken six years, a constant effort from the principal of this college, assisted by Donny Monroe to get my pronunciation to that level. <laughs> and it's a tribute, uh, not to me, <laughs> but to their expertise. I have to say, uh, delighted though I am, honoured though I am, to be addressing this Community's Land Scotland Conference, or speaking here at Selmore in its 40th anniversary year, I did have a, a moment's hesitation the other day when I found out I was to be introduced by David Cameron. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, the revolution of land ownership in Scotland <laughs> has reached the unexpected parts of the political spectrum. But then, of course, uh, as David said, uh, he may be slightly older, but certainly a lot wiser uh, than his namesake. So I I'm delighted to, to be here. When, when Selma Rostig was being established 40 years ago, Sonny McLean, who was a member of the first board, set out his hopes for the, the college in the poem, A Waxing Moon Above Sleep. He contrasts the, the castle's bare cairn and the weak dead ramparts with the herbs and flowers of aspirations about Sabaloch's and a light, the sunbeam of the gale's hope about its old and new walls, may good fortune and success be with the great work. And so the great work of this college has met with fortune and success over these last four decades. This is one of Scotland's most inspiring institutions. It's an integral part, of course, of the University of the Highlands and Islands and itself a remarkable and great achievement. It contributes to the preservation of the renewal uh, of Gaelic that's made the Sleep Peninsula more prosperous, more populated and more successful. Immediately after I, I speak at the conference today, uh, I'm going to cut the first turf of the, the phase of the Kilbeg Village Development Project. That project will ultimately create the first new village to be built in Skye for more than 100 years. It is the uh, clearest possible evidence of the potential over time uh, for the repopulation and renewal of, of rural Scotland. Now, it's uh, worth remembering in 1973, Selmore, the, the Great Barn, was a, a semi-derelict set of farm steadings. The steadings belonged to one of the farms established during the 19th century, which had taken the place of communities which had emptied during the course of the clearances. Uh, and family after family would have, uh, would have passed these steadings, heading for ships to take them to a new life overseas. And the contrast with the current vibrancy of sleep demonstrated by that new village would have seemed almost inconceivable at that time. It would have seemed equally unlikely in 1883 that the, the pier in the northwest of Skye, where the Royal Navy landed to arrest the Glendale Crofters, who had protested, of course, on the restoration of grazing rights, would one day be owned as a community asset. But following Wednesday's very welcome sale of the pier for a pound uh, by Highland Council to Glendale Community Trust, that is exactly the current position. So this is a fitting venue and a very fitting time for a conference of Community Land Scotland. An organisation, of course, dedicated to enabling communities to empower themselves, to prosper and to learn from each other's successes. The communities represented here 
now own around half a million acres of land in Scotland. That is a magnificent achievement on the part of each and every organisation here represented. That in itself is a, a change in the land ownership pattern, but of course the accomplishment goes a great deal deeper than that. Communities like Noidart have shown that the depopulation can be reversed, businesses created, homes built in localities where these things for far too long were believed to be simply impossible. Uh, the organisations represented here have demonstrated that wind power and other resources can be harnessed for local purposes. You've pro pro proven that previously loss-making estates can actually be run at a profit, and not just a profit, but a community profit. You've shown by embarking on projects such as the, the Woodland Restoration that communities are just as capable as any outside body, indeed more capable, of sustaining and enhancing the environment. A lot of that can't be readily measured, but some of it can. The 160 kilowatt output of Egg's unique island grid, the 2.5 million of revenues expected for the Lockhart wind farm in South Uist, the homes built and refurbished in Gia, the 50% increase in population here, there in Gia. But underpinning all of these developments is something more intangible, and that is the, the boost to collective self-confidence that communities derive from gaining ownership of their own land and taking charge of their own destiny. Uh, today I, I, I was over opening the, uh, the new marine harvest uh, salmon hatchery and uh, I met uh, Lady Ross of Marnock, the widow of the late Willie Ross, Secretary of State for Scotland in the, the 1960s. And he was the Secretary of State who first moved into to Butte House and a very formidable Secretary of State he, he was. Uh, in Butte House drawing room, I've got a portrait of another Secretary of State, uh, and that is uh, Tom Johnson, who was Secretary of State during the, the Second World War. Uh, Tom Johnson's there for a number of reasons. He passed the legislation, of course, in 1943, which led to the establishment of the North of Scotland Hydroelectric Board. Uh, after the war, he effectively appointed himself uh, the second chairman of the Hydroelectric Board. I'm not absolutely certain what the, the great newspapers of this realm would have made of the idea of uh, a Secretary of State or a First Minister effectively appointing himself. <laughs> but nonetheless, if we judge what happens in terms of practical achievement as opposed to process, then Tom Johnson's effective appointment of himself as the second chairman of the Hydroelectric Board was one of the most significant, life-saving things that happened to the Highlands of Scotland. You can make the argument that Tom Johnson did more than any other individual in the 20th century to arrest the depopulation of the Highlands. In 1945, fewer than half of the homes in the Highlands had access to electricity. By 1959, when he stood down as chair of the Hydro Board, that proportion had increased to over 90%. And nobody, when Tom Johnson took over chairmanship, least of all his immediate predecessor uh, as chairman, who was uh, overcome by the entrenched opposition uh, to the hydroelectric schemes, uh, which was the reason for, for him stepping down. Nobody uh, believed that such a transformation would be possible over that period of time. And Tom Johnson, as a young man, was the editor of Forward, the, the independent Labour Party magazine, and he wrote a series of articles which then became a bestseller. It was entitled Our Scots Noble Families. 
Uh, the title and the book, of course, was iconic. It was basically a catalogue of misdeeds. Uh, Johnston argued that the Scottish nobility's title deeds are rapine, murder, massacre, cheating, or court harlotry. Uh, and basically, Johnston uh, went through the noble families of Scotland almost one by one uh, and explained how they'd uh, depopulated the land, expropriated the people, uh, engaged in the clearances, and of course, because he was a formidable home ruler, sold the nation in every single year from 1707. When he became Secretary of State in the wartime, he did it on agreement with Churchill that his writ would run in Scotland. Uh, Churchill, who was by no means the greatest devolver in history, kept that promise for about a week. Johnston then had to find another mechanism to come to terms with the Prime Minister. And so what he did was he said to Churchill that he would form a Council of State. And the agreement was that if Johnston got the support of the Council of State, which was to compo be composed of every surviving former Secretary of State for Scotland, then Churchill would not gainsay a Johnston proposal for Scotland. If, on the other hand, Johnston couldn't command the support of the Council of State, uh, then he wouldn't push forward a proposal against Churchill's agreement. And that was the agreement they came to, and to be fair to Churchill, by and large, on the whole, that agreement was, uh, was kept. And out of that agreement, incidentally, came the legislation to establish the Hydroelectric Board and the plenipotentiary powers uh, that came with it in 1943. There was obviously a difficulty with that uh, agreement and the Council of State, because if you cast your mind back to our noble families, written in 1909, uh, then it was exactly the same noble families who were the former Secretary of States for Scotland who were to be on the Council of State. Uh, now what I'm about to tell you I can absolutely verify uh, because it was told to me by Alistair Dunnett. Uh, Alistair was the 21-year-old press secretary of Tom Johnston, later to become editor of the Scotsman newspaper, husband of Dorothy Dunnett, chairman of Thomson Oil for Roy Tem uh, Thompson, and one of the great figures of uh, Scottish journalism. But in 1941, Alistair was uh, a very young press secretary for the Secretary of State for Scotland. So Johnston's solution to this conundrum uh, was simple, pragmatic. He got Alistair to buy up every extant copy of our noble families. He effectively drew his own book, temporarily, from circulation. And Alistair told me this from 15 years ago over lunch. At, and, uh, and I said, well, you know, how could that work? Even in the days before the internet. I mean, surely somebody had mentioned. <laughs> and Alistair said, well, he said, many of the aristocrats of Scotland were not among the greatest readers in the country. So my second question was, what happened to the books? And Alistair said, well, of course, Tom Johnson couldn't destroy a book. So in his home, there was an entire room where if you opened the door, <laughs> there was thousands of copies <laughs> of our noble families. Some years later, a young man called Hamish McKinnon asked Johnston why he'd taken the action to withdraw the book come to terms with the uh, Council of State, get the legislation, establish the Hydro Board. And Johnston said to, in return, he said, times change, McKinnon, times change. What actually he'd done was to demonstrate that he was both a visionary and a radical, but he was also pragmatic. He wanted 
to make sure that the achievement went through. He's in the drawing room at Butte House for a whole range of reasons. But he's also in that drawing room because every time I hear, and I do hear many times, the latest protest against wind energy, I look up at the portrait of Tom Johnston and remember that anything that comes in opposition to renewable power in Scotland now is as of nothing compared to the opposition to hydropower in the late 40s and 50s in Scotland. The irony, of course, is that some of the greatest tourist attractions <laughs> in the Highlands of Scotland are exactly these great hydroelectric uh, engagements and dams, uh, which have become some of the features of the greatest parts of the Highlands, but were, which were absolutely necessary to achieve Johnson's vision of, of bringing electricity to the glens. So what I want to focus on today is how we can actually get things done, how we achieve things, how we empower, how we regenerate communities. I want to talk about three ways of making change, legislation which will follow in the Scots Parliament, improvements that we can make without legislation, and the additional opportunities that we can seize in my estimation, with Scottish independence. As was said by the real David Cameron, <laughs> that last year I announced uh, in this very college the establishment of the Land Reform Review Group. I'm delighted that Alison Elliott, the group's chair, is here with us today. I want to thank Jim Hunter and Sarah Skerritt for the significant contribution to the review group's work. And also, of course, to welcome the appointment of Ian Cook and John Watt uh, onto the review group. As the Minister said in the Scots Parliament on Wednesday, we'll shortly appoint two further members to the group, increasing its membership to five. The group's interim report, published two weeks ago, provides a, a clear basis for further analysis and consideration. It's clear as the report itself acknowledges that more work is required to make final proposals, which pass the test of being both radical and practical. The group is establishing six work streams, commissioning papers and topics such as taxation and the Crown Estate. There will also be a short life working group on the improvements that are necessary in the legislative framework of the community right to buy. I speak from not the experience that is in this room, but from some personal experience about community right to buy. I've been personally involved in two community purchases in Aberdeenshire. Uh, one of the first ever exercising of the community right to buy uh, rights in the Act in 2003 by the Bottom Development Trust, uh, engagement which was important in demonstrating that the Ministry of Defence was covered by the legislation, was partially successful in gaining at least the playing fields that the Development Trust were after, but not successful in terms of gaining the whole ambition of the project, which was to have the whole of the former Air Force Base and Bottom in community ownership. I'm pleased to say that the other project I've been engaged in and stricken has been much more successful, modest in its uh, aim and ambition perhaps, but hugely important for that community and has been totally successful. So I have some experience of the requirement and the desire to streamline the current buyout process. I understand why we need to consider why the current requirements for information are rather too onerous, whether the timescales currently required by law are sufficiently flexible. Uh, as part of this analysis, we'll ask the review group to look at how we can prevent land being marketed in a way which hinders community purchase, 
for example, by owners not publicising their desire to sell. And I would like the review group to explore issues relating to the community purchase of land which has been on the market for some time. Sometimes communities become interested in purchasing land sometime after it's been put up for sale. When that happens, as the way the current legislation is drafted, they can actually be stopped from registering an interest. These sorts of areas strike me as genuine, practical barriers. They matter. If they can be addressed, it will help make the right to buy legislation work more effectively. And let me say that uh, I talk a little about my experience as a constituency member of Parliament. I've experienced over the last week as First Minister of Scotland in the intricacy of some of the legal processes uh, which are part of the current legislative framework. Uh, I was hoping to be able this very day to make a, a further announcement about a further successful community right to buy, uh, which is being held up not by any lack of willingness to buy, or for that matter, in this case, any lack of willingness to sell, uh, but by part of the legislative framework, which intricately makes it actually difficult to complete the transaction. Now, that will be overcome, but it's an interesting example of the hurdles that the current legislation often puts, sometimes inadvertently, in the part of community, on the path of community ownership. But these changes are just part of a, a much broader commitment that I want to make today. Uh, the Scottish Government will consult later this year on a draft community empowerment renewable. I confirm absolutely that draft bill will include provisions from an improved community right to buy. There will be a legislative framework which enhances that right. The Land Reform Review Group's work, of course, will have a vital role to play as we draft, consult and then prepare to introduce legislation. The Group's interim report has already made it clear that it will consider closely the proposal from Community Land Scotland, which of course sought to establish an agency to facilitate the transfer of land. Of course, one of the Review Group's six new work screens will investigate how such a land agency might operate. It sends a powerful signal that the final report will give Community Land Scotland's proposals all of the attention that is required. This work will be complemented by that of the Farm Tenancies Review, which will start later this year, a review which will be able to use some of the evidence obtained by the Land Reform Review Group as a point for its own deliberations. Overall, the land reform process has the opportunity to lead to legislation which will achieve a lasting impact. The outcome of that process will be a stronger economy and a fairer society. Now, I want to look at improvements which don't need legislation. The Scottish Land Fund, Renewable Energy, National Forest Land Scheme. There are practical measures which we can take to strengthen community ownership now. I hope that further ideas will emerge, of course, from the review group, but I want to set out what the Scottish Government is doing right now. As this conference knows, we re-established the Community Land Fund last year in order to facilitate this process. It is rather difficult to have a community purchase when there is no fund in order for the communities to purchase, or at least no fund which supports the range of community purchases, and that's why we re-established the fund. The fund has been widely welcome. It's worth £6 million over the three years to 2011. It has already helped five community buyouts uh, in the Scottish Borders, in Colin Tribe, in Argyll, in Easter Ross, in the Mull of Galloway, in Wigtonshire, Wigtonshire and in Lossiemouth and Murray. I can announce today that the Communities Land Fund will continue across the term 
of this Parliament till the end of the, the current Parliament in 2016, and therefore there will be an allocation of another £3 million, a 50% increase, during the financial year of 2015-2016. That funding and the assurance of continuity of funding which lies behind it is a signal of the strength of our commitment to community ownership. A recognition that even in the toughest of budgetary times, it's more important than ever to empower local communities and to help them to help themselves. In addition to the land fund, we want to do everything we can to enable communities to invest in renewable developments, both through direct ownership and commercial partnerships. The example provided by some of the projects engaged in by people representing groups today has been inspirational. I've mentioned Egg and Loch Carnan, but Gear's fourth wind turbine, which was announced two weeks ago, will provide the community with more than £1 million of benefit over the lifetime of the project, money which can contribute directly to a housing improvement programme. In total, 204 megawatts of community and locally owned renewable capacity is already operational. That's enough to power 100,000 homes. But we want to see more community ownership, more community benefits. It was, after all, the aim and intention of Tom Johnson's Hydro Board that the natural renewable energy resources of the Highlands benefited the people of the Highlands. It's now the government's duty to ensure that Scotland's second renewable revolution benefits people and communities across the country. And that's about benefits as well as ownership. Our community and renewable energy scheme helps communities to build their own renewable schemes, but also to negotiate with developers for community benefits from commercial schemes. There are more than 60 community benefit funds across Scotland, which currently bring in payments of more than £4 million. Now, I believe there's scope for taking that much further, and that's why we're currently consulting in the planning framework uh, to have a, a further application of community benefits. For example, it might be possible to use planning powers to ensure that renewable energy schemes provide a greater share of their benefits to community assets. As things stand, we've led the way with our own public agencies. Forestry Commission Scotland has negotiated £5,000 per megawatt of benefit, which was more than twice the previous industry standard. That has had the effect of bringing certain of the developers, Vattenfall, SSE, and to be fair, some others, into line with that announcement and recommendation that I made last year. I noticed yesterday that the UK government has now followed suit uh, for schemes in England. Finally, the, the Scottish government has responsibilities as a landowner, as a major landowner, to make community ownership easier. The National Forest Land Scheme enables communities to buy local woodlands and forestry commission in Scotland even where that land has not been put up for sale. That scheme has enabled communities in Argyll, North West Mull, to purchase forestry land. And of course, here in Sleep, the Forestry Commission sold almost 1,000 acres to Sleep Community Trust in, in 2011. And the community is exploring options for establishing a turbine on the land and has established a five-year plan for harvesting timber, developing infrastructure, and creating new amenities. It's worth noting, ladies and gentlemen, that we've been able to make that progress with the Forestry's Commission because we control the Forestry Commission, because it's a devolved structure. Uh, many of you will be aware of the position in Cape Wrath at the present moment, where there's been a, a tension as to whether Cape Wrath would be further developed as a 
as an area of community land ownership, ensuring that the Scottish National Trail will take us from the borders to the very tip of the, the mainland of Scotland, or whether it will become part of an enlarged bombing range. <laughs> this is a difficult choice, is it not? <laughs> Uh, and therefore, we shall look with interest as to the outcome of that particular tussle. Not just look with interest, but act with interest in the next few weeks. The important point I'm making is that much of the success in turning the public agencies of Scotland into enablers of a desirable goal is because they are the public agencies of Scotland. Uh, the Crown of State and the Ministry of Defence between them own 150,000 acres of land in Scotland. I look forward to the day, and that day is coming, ladies and gentlemen, when these agencies will be subject to the democratic <coughs> political will of Scotland and will enable these agencies to act in the socially responsible manner that the Forestry Commission is now pursuing in the form of community land ownership. I think it is important that Scotland's public land moves into community hands. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a huge opportunity to shape a stronger and better relationship between our land and our people. Community Land Scotland is a hugely important voice in that debate and that opportunity. I said at the start of my speech that Selmore is in an area which was previously marked by depopulation and decline. Sodom McLean, if you remember, saw the herbs and flowers of aspirations 40 years ago. And the regeneration of Sleet shows how these aspirations, as a result, as a result entirely of community leadership, have been fulfilled here in recent decades. The aspirations of community buyouts are being fulfilled. What members of Community Land Scotland have achieved in Noida and Nielsen, Macrahanish and Mackay Country and Gia and Egg and Rum is genuinely inspirational for the rest of the country. But I've learned as we look at these matters that in terms of galvanising effort, in terms of having the whole public body of Scotland exercised in a transformation, it is important, it is necessary to set targets. To set targets which many people say are ambitious, some people say are overambitious, but nonetheless setting the target enables the galvanisation of the effort and makes achievement possible. Some years ago I, I, I set a target uh, for renewable energy generation in Scotland of uh, 50% by 2020, and I, it was greeted with, <laughs> with scepticism, huge scepticism, in terms of what was achievable. Last year, last year, we're now at 40% of renewable energy generation compared with Scottish demand. The 50% target is now for 2050. 2020 is a 100% target now. Some years ago, the Scottish Parliament united uh, across the parties, unanimously, as being the only parliament in the world, as far as I know, to, to endorse the idea of a, of a carbon reduction target by 2020, unanimously, as part of the, the Scottish Government's response to, to greenhouse gases and to, and to the climate change agenda. Uh, it was thought that 42% uh, was an over-ambitious target which was unachievable anywhere in the Western world. The statistics released today show that Scotland's emissions have now achieved a reduction of 29.6% compared to the average of the EU member states of 
well in our way to achieving that incredibly ambitious 42% target by 2020. In each of these areas and in others, <clears throat> what I've learned as First Minister, and I have learned one or two things as First Minister, uh, that the setting of the target is an important part of galvanizing the public body in order to make the achievement more possible. It doesn't in itself, of course, make the achievement. Uh, the renewable energy target has been assisted by the, the campaigners and the developers of renewable energy. Uh, the climate change target has been uh, assisted by the engagement across industry and, and social policy uh, as well as the parliament. The mere setting of the target doesn't uh, make it necessary or inevitable to achieve, but without the target, then there's always the danger that the level of ambition falls. And I'm conscious of the experience, the practical experience of Tom Johnston, when he set himself an idea of bringing electricity to the Highlands of Scotland, and then went about practically, pragmatically, radically, but above all, in terms of performance, the ability to achieve it. And that's why I think from today's conference, what I want to do is to set another target, and this is for community land ownership in Scotland. I believe it is possible, I believe it's necessary for us to set a target of one million acres of Scotland in community land ownership by 2020. It is a target which has been articulated indeed by this organisation in the past. I think if we engage the Scottish body politic, if we engage in the legislation, but above all the practical steps it's necessary to take, then we can achieve such a target. I'm well aware, incidentally, that uh, size of acreage is not the, the only thing that matters. Of course, uh, land matters for economic, strategic, sometimes symbolic reasons, not just the question of size. But in terms of the overall scale of ambition, to galvanise the Scottish public body politic in order to achieve that aim strikes me as the right time and level of ambition to, to make it. I'm struck by the fact, and we have a number of opportunities before us, ladies and gentlemen, that I'd rather live in a Scotland with one million acres in community land ownership than a country which doesn't have that ambition and that target. And that's why, from this conference today, I'm setting the target well aware that the people in this audience are exactly the people who've demonstrated that such an ambition can be realised. Thank you very much.